This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about personal bankruptcy uh, in this province, in British Columbia. And it's all things that you probably didn't know. So if you've been researching bankruptcy in BC, you're going to find an overwhelming amount of information available, whether it's from the internet, your friends, your family, even financial advisors. But unfortunately, it's not all going to be true. A lot of people tend to make up their mind that bankruptcy is not for them simply because they've heard or read the wrong thing, or there's just such a stigma to it that you can't even conceive the idea. So to help clear up some of those misconceptions, Blair Manton's going to break down the five facts about bankruptcy that you may not know about, which I think is super cool, Blair, that you're doing Mm, this. Yeah, happy to do so. So let's start with an overview of personal bankruptcy in this country. How does it work? Yeah, so thanks, Elena. I think, you know, for someone that's considering personal bankruptcy, the first thing to understand is that they're not alone. Um, You know, there's a huge number of circumstances that could lead to financial difficulties, Um, you know, whether it's job loss, illness, divorce, or, you know, the global pandemic that, you know, we're we're dealing with these days. Uh, But there's tens of thousands of individuals each year in Canada that file for bankruptcy or do a consumer proposal. You know, it's it's often in the range of 120 to 150,000 people. So that's not an insignificant portion of the population of Canada here. What bankruptcy is, is it's a legal option. It's available to anyone who owes money and is not able to pay it. So the option to file bankruptcy is yours. There's no creditor that can prevent you from seeking protection. Um, And if the situation has left you unable to pay your debts, you've got the right to get a financial fresh start. Uh, When you file for personal bankruptcy in Canada, you don't work with a lawyer, you can't do it yourself, you have to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, and that would be Sands & Associates. So previously we were called a trustee in bankruptcy, and now we're called a licensed insolvency trustee just because we do do other things than bankruptcy. We do consumer proposals, we do a lot of credit counseling and informal advice and things like that. You know, a lot of people think bankruptcy is going to take you seven years and it's going to impact you for the rest of your life. We're going to talk about today how those are are false assumptions and that bankruptcy is often quicker, uh, necessary way to move forward, and it puts you on a good track for the future. And the fact that you mentioned uh, a lawyer can't do it for you, you, you also don't have to see a lawyer in order to start the process. That's right. Now, anybody can see a lawyer anytime they want for advice, but for the vast majority of people, they just come straight to a trustee. Uh, a trustee will give them all the advice that they need and help them make the decision to file for bankruptcy. So if you're ever traveling in the States, you see a ton of bankruptcy lawyer advertisements. If you wonder why you don't see them in Canada, it's because essentially a trustee plays that role. Okay. So um, how much debt do you need to have before you can even think about declaring bankruptcy? This is an interesting one, Elaine. It's $1,000. So it's a minimum of $1,000, which is not a big number, right? No, it's not. And that hasn't changed since about the Great Depression. So when the bankruptcy laws were written, you know, way back in the 1930s or so, $1,000 was pretty significant. What would that be? You know, $15,000, $20,000 today. Uh, but they haven't updated that. Now, is anybody filing bankruptcy when they owe $1,000? Nobody I've ever seen. Um, and I would probably counsel them away from doing so. But in some situations, you know, a $5,000 debt can be as unmanageable as a $75,000 debt, depending on the personal situation and how much that's impacted the individual. So it's exactly. a minimum of $1,000. It's 
theoretically unlimited. You know, I've had people go bankrupt owing millions of dollars. Most yeah. often it's in the range of, you know, forty to $60,000, but uh, the strict minimum is just $1,000. Now, does everything, do all your debts get included in that bankruptcy? Well, not all, but I would say all that should be included, okay? And I'll explain what I mean by that. So the ones that yeah. are included, you know, first off, debts with Canada Revenue Agency. So whether it's income taxes or GST or source deductions or things like that, if you owe the government money, it can be dealt with in a bankruptcy. Uh, student loans as well, government-backed student loans. Uh, government wants you to try to, you know, make a good faith effort after you graduated for seven years to try to earn income. But if you're still experiencing hardship after seven years from when uh, you graduated your program or stopped studying, absolutely student loans can be included in a bankruptcy. Uh, MSP premiums can be included in a bankruptcy if you've got any of those um, still hanging around from before they were eliminated. Uh, most of the other debts that you have, you know, even a debt due to gambling, even a personal debt, uh, you know, the debts that could be included are the ones, again, that kind of make sense. So a court-imposed fine. So if you're held accountable in court, uh, some damages are awarded against you, you can't go bankrupt on those damages typically. Uh, if okay. there's alimony and maintenance payments, uh, you know, you've got some support obligations you have to make for your family. Obviously, those can't be discharged in a bankruptcy either. And then general dishonesty. So if you owe money because you stole something or you obtained property through false pretenses, those can't be dealt with in a bankruptcy. So a bankruptcy, it's targeted at someone who is honest but unfortunate. So if, you know, a general business dispute, you've been honest but unfortunate the whole time. If you go through a bankruptcy, you would be able to have the debt dealt with. If it's a business dispute where you're convicted of fraud, there's all these allegations you've committed a crime. If you go through a bankruptcy, that might not be discharged at the end. Okay. So the thing is, I know that a lot of people worry about how they're going to be penalized for claiming bankruptcy. And I guess it's a holdover from old stories and movies and just how, how the, you know, things we've been told and how we might have grown up knowing that. And that sometimes you, you, you're never going to recover from that. So recover from declaring bankruptcy. But that's, Let's talk about the facts here, because that's not necessarily true. Yeah, ex exactly right. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, I get calls all the time with people saying, well, how much money am I allowed to earn in bankruptcy? Is my income too high or too low uh, to file for bankruptcy? And, and, you know, the answer is there's no income cap in a bankruptcy. If you go into a bankruptcy, you can earn whatever income you choose to earn, uh, but realize that while you're in the bankruptcy, the amount that you have to repay on the debt and the length of time that the bankruptcy is going to last for, uh, they're driven 100% by your income. They're not driven by the amount of the debt. And if someone has never been in bankruptcy, before, if they're considered low income, which for a single person is less than about two hundred about $2,200 per month take-home pay. If they're considered low income, bankruptcy runs for nine months. If they're not low income, bankruptcy runs for a year longer than that. So it's not the case that someone that's high income is going to be held into bankruptcy for five or 10 years to make them pay back all the debt. The worst case for someone who's never been bankrupt before is less than two years, 21 months. Um, and typically, if somebody has a very high income, they're going to look at other alternatives to a bankruptcy. Oftentimes, a consumer proposal where they make a, a deal to repay the debt or part of the debt without interest, you know, oftentimes that might cost them a similar amount or just a little bit more than a bankruptcy, but then they avoid the proceeding altogether. They make a repayment. So it's not the case if you've got high income, bankruptcy is not an option for you. It very well might be, uh, but often a proposal is a good option for you to consider too. Okay. Now, one of the other things that comes along with, or with the idea of being bankrupt is that you lose everything. And mm -hmm. that's not, the, that's not true either. 
Right. And that comes from, you know, the 30 second pop culture assumption of bankruptcy, which is, oh, my God, it's the end of your life. You're, you lose everything. You never recover and so on and so forth. And as soon as you start to peel back the layers, you realize that most people are generally in a better position to keep their assets after they filed a bankruptcy uh, than before. So what I mean by that is when you file for bankruptcy, there's a number of assets that are classified as exempt. And what that means is they don't count in the bankruptcy. And it just makes sense. You know, you need to give somebody a good base of assets to reestablish themselves, to move forward, to be a positive member of society. You know, if a tradesperson goes into bankruptcy and suddenly you take their tools from them, how do you expect that person to ever earn income again? You haven't solved the problem. You haven't done anything good here. So if someone files for bankruptcy, the exemptions that they're allowed to keep, uh, household items, so all the furniture, their personal effects worth up to a $4,000 value at a garage sale value, um, those are all exempt. So I've never once went to someone's house to start cart away their possessions. I wouldn't be doing that job if that was this job if it was part of that. So that just doesn't right. happen in Canada. Uh, you know, a vehicle or vehicle equity up to a $5,000 value. So if you finance the car, almost always you have less than $5,000 equity almost towards the end of that. And most people, if they've got a lot of debts, they're usually not driving, you know, a fully paid off brand new car here. It's usually financed or it's an older car. So a vehicle up to $5,000 or equity in that amount could be kept. Um, home equity is an interesting one. So people think, oh my God, if I go into bankruptcy, I'll automatically lose my house. Well, the answer is no. Depending on the amount of equity that you have, if you've just got a minimal amount of equity, you're allowed up to $12,000 as an equity exemption uh, before your house is even considered in a bankruptcy filing. Uh, and we've talked a lot about things like RRSPs, which are fully exempt. The only exception is if you've contributed a ton of money in the last 12 months before you file for bankruptcy. But most people, if they're having a debt problem, they stop contributing to their RRSPs. And the key thing is just not to pull any of that money out and it, and it stays fully exempt. And the last thing, as I mentioned, is your tools of the trade. So if someone files for bankruptcy, whatever tools they need to earn income, up to a reasonable value of $10,000 at a liquidation cost, um, those are, are also allowed to be retained. Now, the other thing, too, I, I added onto that list, which I think is super interesting, is that uh, certain life insurance policies and nearly our, all pension plans are also protected. That's right. Yeah. So just about every pension, well, I guess every pension plan that I've ever seen, I haven't seen one that's not, is fully protected. So if you've got a pension plan and you're worried about filing for bankruptcy, don't be. You know, that could never be taken from you. Uh, with life insurance, it all matters who is the beneficiary. And if you had any sort of advice at all from an insurance agent, they would say typically don't make your estate the beneficiary, make it the family member who you really want to get the money. So if it's a spouse, a parent, a grandparent, or a child, if any of those are your beneficiaries and you've got a really valuable life insurance policy, if you filed for bankruptcy, you would keep that policy with no issues. And I think one of the pieces about, uh, you know, filing for bankruptcy is that, you know, you'll never, that the, the value of you as a, a human being contributing to the planet in any way will forever be damaged. Um, but that's not true. And, and the same can be said about your credit. Like, y you will be able to sort of continue on in a life that, resembles the one you had before the bankruptcy. Yeah, and Elaine, this is one that, that really frustrates me, this myth and this misconception. And I see it put out there sometimes by, you know, financial advisors or credit counselors or people who really should know better. And they counsel people about the lifelong impact of bankruptcy. Okay, the lifelong impact of bankruptcy. I have not had a single client in 13 years of being a trustee uh, ever call me and talk to me about this long term impact of filing for bankruptcy. It's quite the opposite. I have people call me pretty regularly saying I was discharged three or four years ago because I could eliminate all the debt because I could rebuild my credit. Now I'm getting a mortgage because I was able to save a down payment. 
So quite often where people are scared of taking the step of a bankruptcy because they're worried how it's going to impact their future, all they do is tread water. They keep a good credit rating, but they're just paying minimums on debts that don't go down and they're unable to save any money. And if the goal of a credit rating is to eventually allow you to get a mortgage, you need the down payment first. So if your debts are stopping you from saving money, bankruptcy is going to be the best thing you could do or, or a consumer proposal, but eliminating your debts is going to be the best thing you could do to enable you to actually have that financial success later in life to get that mortgage. And it's absolutely not the case that you couldn't be considered to for a mortgage after a bankruptcy. Generally, two to three years after a discharge, you could be considered for a mortgage with no crazy risk premium. You'd be the same as a typical other consumer and you'd be better off than when you started because you've got no debt, you've dealt with it, um, and now you've rebuilt your credit. So it's not the lifelong impact. It's actually, it's a very much, it's a much more positive way to look towards the future after you finish the bankruptcy. Yeah. So in wrapping this segment up, I just want to remind folks um, about your website. It's just so great. It's the, the address is sans-trustee.com. And when I say it's chock-a-block, it is filled with great questions and great answers. So it, there's lots of stuff that we are unable to cover in every segment that we do. This is a great resource for you to go to. Or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Visit their website, get the appointment, and start to take some good action. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us, Steve Soretsky, Vancouver realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs, which you can read easily at stevesoretsky.com. Now, real estate in the Lower Mainland is always an interesting topic, regardless of what else is going on. And in this segment, we're going to talk about two parts of it, which we don't always get a chance to sort of uh, do a bit of a deep dive on. One is the rental market in the Lower Mainland, because things do change, including that, and the pre-sale market. So Steve, welcome to the show and so glad that you can uh, give us some good information. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun. Let's, uh, let's roll. So rental market, you were saying that there's, there's, there's some stuff going on there that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on. I mean, that's been kind of changing quickly, obviously. Um, you know, the rental market in Vancouver, as I've been talking about for, for some time, it kind of peaked out about a, just over a year ago. It's kind of you know, I wouldn't say necessarily that prices were coming down per se, but, you know, when we had the introduction of the empty homes tax, the speculation tax, it brought a little bit more supply on. And, um, yeah, so we were kind of seeing a little bit of downwards movement and downward momentum in that rental market. And obviously now, um, you know, we're seeing this with, with people being laid off, you know, um, you know, particularly for, as I'm sure Blair can attest to, is, is you know renters typically don't have as much of a buffer um to you know for that for those rainy days so obviously some of them are struggling with the rental payments um and so you know you have a situation where there's some some easing on in the rental market where um you know obviously you right now you can't evict anybody um so you know some landlords are working with the tenants and saying well if you can't pay me two thousand bucks you know per our agreement this month why don't we just say hey you know we'll give you let's can you pay fifteen hundred and so, you know, you're seeing that, but you're also seeing the landlords that do have units that are trying to rent them out. You're seeing some downwards uh, pressure on the prices there. Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of it in Vancouver is anecdotal, but we don't have, because we just don't have good rental data. 
but I do keep in touch with a lot of contacts, like, for example, over in Toronto, and that was a, a rental market that was just absolutely booming. And, and they, they're saying, uh, my good friend over there who, who's in that rental market is saying that, you know, their prices are down on average three and a half percent in the past month. And so that's kind of similar to what I'm seeing today is that, um, you know, vacancies are, are up slightly. And, um, you know, if you have a tenant leave, I mean, for example, you have a tenant leave and you have to fill that void. It's just going to be challenging to, to ask that, you know, that new tenant to pay top dollar. Um, you know, particularly as more Airbnb units come onto the market. Um, you know, so that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Yeah, and I think that'll be an, an interesting dynamic, Steve, as you just mentioned, the, the Airbnb and an increase in supply. Because uh, for myself as a trustee, I've been a trustee in, in Vancouver doing personal insolvency since, you know, about 2008 or so. Um, and I just can't believe the last five years, the inflation and in rental costs in my Vancouver office. So uh, the listeners would have heard me say before, you know, when I was becoming a trustee, you know, a quarter to a third of your income, that was a good benchmark for rent. And a lot of people that I saw were hitting that. Now, just about everybody that I see in the Vancouver market, it's 50% of their income that's going to rent. Um, at that point, it's pretty difficult not to have a debt problem if, you know, 50 cents of every dollar is just to keep a roof over your head. So I was feeling like, you know, rents are rising to a point where they're unsustainable for the local market. Um, so a little bit of a moderation in those costs will definitely help, you know, the average consumer make ends meet a little bit better. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a really good point. I know we've talked about that before. But yeah, it's like, you know, you look at it, it's like at the end of the day, you know, the rental market is mostly tied to the local economy. It's like, you know, when, when, when business is good and people are getting wage increases, like you're able to obviously pass on some rent increases, but you know, particularly when we're in an environment where we have double digit unemployment. And, you know, if you do get rehired, which is fantastic, like the, I, the last thing you're probably going to do is go to your boss and say, Hey, by the way, can I get a raise? So I think that's naturally um, going to put a, a, uh, you know, a cap on, on, on future rent growth here in, in the near term anyways. Well, in some ways, there's just, you know, it's, it's finally, it's validating the business cycle that not everything can go up forever and never come down. So, you know, rents can't go yeah. up forever and neither, neither can asset value. So eventually there's got to be some corrections on those. Uh, I don't exactly. think this is a, sh- a shorter segment. We also wanted to get some of your intel on pre-sale condos. So obviously people driving around Vancouver, a ton of buildings going up, you know, a certain percentage already sold. There's probably a lot of people out there who are holding pre-sales and maybe feeling a little bit of uncertainty, you know, in, in a declining market or in a changing market, you know, what can happen. So what are the type of risks? What do you see unfolding in the pre-sale market? Yeah, no, for sure. I think this is a really important segment to highlight, um, you know, briefly. But um, so basically, quick quick you know we have a uh, record number of new homes under construction so these are homes that are going to need to complete over the next 12 to 24 months um and so you know that creates a situation where if you locked into a pre-sale you might have you know gone to your bank and pre-qualified for that mortgage um you know a year ago when you entered into the pre-sale agreement but when you go to re when you go to actually complete and close on the unit you have to go through the uh, mortgage qualification process again. So the bank's going right. to say, "Well, do you still have a do you still have a job? Uh, you do, uh, you know, if you do have a job, great. Like, are you making you know what you thought you were going to make?" And so I think there's going to be some problems with people, unfortunately, closing on these units. Um, again, obviously, you got laid off, or if you if you were making a hundred thousand dollars a year and now you're only making you know eighty five thousand a year because you got a different job, um, you know that that's that's going to impact your qualifications. 
And, you know, unfortunately, it was a speculative, uh, you know, highly speculative market, the, the pre-sale market. It's just naturally what it always is and was. Um, but right now, like pre-coming into the virus, um, the number of assignments, which is basically, basically people trying to flip their pre-sale obligations. So the number of assignments listed for sale on the MLS was actually at all-time highs coming into this. So oh, that wow. basically tells me that you had quite a few number of individuals that obviously were hoping to sort of off, you know, sell their, their obligations, basically. Like they were never intending to live in the units. To, to your point, it's a bit speculative. It's you buy it at pre-sale, then when it's constructed, if the market went up 30 or 40%, well, you're a genius, right? Yeah, exactly. So obviously some people were just like, hey, let me just test the market and see if I can make a quick profit. Um, I'm sure that some of them also are people that maybe didn't have any intentions to actually close or maybe can't qualify. Um, so there's there's some of that. And, and then, you know, as we sort of move into further out the, uh, the pre-sale sort of curve, if you, you know, like if you had bought a pre-sale in 2016, chances are because the market, you know, was up quite a bit, like, you know, you're probably still in the positive. But, you know, if you bought a pre-sale and say near the peak of the market and 2017 2018 and you're closing you know at the end of this year or you know early into 2021 like you know there's a probably a, a very realistic scenario where like that condo might not be worth what you paid for and so again the bank is going to look at it and say well you pre-sale obligation says that you paid eight hundred thousand dollars for this condo but based on our bank appraisal we only think it's worth seven hundred and fifty thousand so you know you're going to have to come up with that difference and Steve, help our listeners understand what happens if you can't complete on a presale. Uh, so, so yeah, what happens on a presale is if you can't complete um, the your 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 deposit, which you gave to the developer, is obviously forfeited, um, and the developer can actually come back and sue you for the difference. So, if they pre-sold you, you know, the condo for a million dollars, and you walk away and have to go resell it in a bad market, and they can only get you know, 850,000, well, they might sue you for that difference. So they say, well, you gave us a 100K deposit, but there's still a $50,000 shortfall. You know, we were going to take you to court and try to get that difference. And we saw a little bit of that in 2008, 2009. Uh, not a whole lot, but it, it did happen. And, and so that's, that's obviously a potential scenario that, that could play out, unfortunately. I've just, I was just going to say, we need to wrap this segment up. I just want to remind uh, the listener as well that Steve's got a terrific blog. It's really widely read. Uh, it's stevesoretsky.com. That's a good place to start. And if you've been, and if you've been feeling like you need to take some action on some debts that you've got, check out uh, the Sands and Associates website. It's sands-trustee.com or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Get that free consultation as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Mark Fidget. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network. 
licensed 26 years in the mortgage industry and the driver behind this website, www.advancedequity.ca. Such a great topic to have right now, Mark, talking about the mortgages and the industry in itself. And I know, Blair, I said that you would get to start the segment off, but this is a crazy number. <laughs> At, mm-hmm. As of April 22nd, 2020, 710 thousand mortgages in this country have been deferred wow that's that's quite something right it's uh, you know it's crazy uh, and and uh, as we'll get into the conversation here trying to get through on the phone to even talk about a deferral the banks have just been slammed i mean hence your numbers yeah, and if, if 710,000 got approved, you know, it's probably north of a million people have, you know, tried to apply or wish they were eligible or something like that. It's probably a pretty significant uh, portion of the overall market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but it, it's, you have to understand that when this first started, there was no blueprint for this, and the banks were just as stunned as everybody else. So in the beginning, it was real Mickey Mouse, and it wasn't until the government stepped in and kind of gave the banks a little bit more of an assurance, uh, CMHC as well. So then it started to have some kind of system to it, but still, those numbers are staggering. And I just, let's be clear here, Mark, because uh, it's just something that I've learned recently. Uh, a deferring, a, a deferred mortgage means that you are not paying your regular payments? Well, yes and no. So the, the big confusion is some people thought that it's free. You don't have to pay. It just goes away. And that's not the case. I think the real word that's missing is the word now. You don't have to pay it now. You for example, what the banks have done is they're deferring up to six months now. So if your payment is, say, $2,000 a month, and let's fast forward six months, you've now deferred six payments of $2,000, so $12,000. So what happens is people are even thinking, well, in six months, do I all of a sudden have to come up with $12,000? No. It's actually added to the back end of your mortgage. So you're going you're gonna to owe just uh, north of $12,000, but it's going to be added to your total. So if you've got a mortgage owing of 200000 now it's 212000 and change, and there's a bit of accrued interest, but it's cheap money. So if you need it, it's a great program. I see. Okay, cool. Thanks for answering that because I, I, I was confused as well. So that's great. Yeah, and, and Mark, who is the typical person that's looking to defer their mortgage these days? You know, what type of factors are banks looking at on whether you qualify? What's been your experience there? Well, who is looking to defer their mortgage? I think this is the real icebreaker here, Blair, and I, I actually heard you say it uh, earlier in the week, you know, w- when the tide goes out, you see what's going on and who's wearing their swimming trunks. The unfortunate <laughs> thing about this whole dilemma is there's no real one painted picture for who is deferring their mortgage. I mean, pilots have been laid off. I mean, you would think, hey, that's a great occupation. You know, the, you've got a, you know, maybe you go out and you're a pilot and you get a great mortgage and it's, it's high, but hey, I got, I got guaranteed income. So really, there was no certain uh, class or, or income. It was basically everybody who was affected. Uh, a lot of them just were very tight to being, uh, you know, one or two months away from not being able to afford a payment. 
And that's that's been a big revelation, I think, for a lot of people, Mark. And I remember, um, you know, I saw with the, the government shutdown in the U.S., you had so many, you know, federal employees, you know, great jobs. And in the space of two weeks, people were down, you know, rationing medication, not able to afford groceries. So it seems to speak to, you know, in general, the average consumer, North American consumer, doesn't have a whole lot of an emergency fund, a whole lot of savings. So, you know, someone like a pilot who's probably earned a good income for a period of time, you know, if, if professionals like that are seeking a mortgage deferral, um, you know, it really doesn't speak well to the average person having a lot of savings or an emergency fund there well and this is just my experience Blair, but my experience with clients of all different incomes is they all seem to live their life according to what they make so um, in a situation mm-hmm. like this when you think everything is guaranteed and nothing's going to change tomorrow and if you're living at maximum capacity in terms of spending yeah, this is where it really comes back to hurt you and you know, you know, Mark, I think that that's one of, they, they talk about that this period of time that we're in, at the end of it, there will be a whole bunch of, uh, sort of new realities. And I always think about it as lessons learned. And I think that might be one of the most important lessons that we are going to come out of this with. That, you know, that pushing to the limits, needing to have everything, wanting to have everything right now in a, in a big form or a small form or in a luxury form or whatever it is, as opposed to taking, uh, taking a, a breath or taking a step and thinking, boy, do I really need to get that now? Do I need to purchase that now? I know that that's something that I go through and I'm, I'm thinking that other people are doing that too. Well, absolutely. I mean, when you think about, Right now, they're talking that people are actually saving more now than when they were, you know, a lot of these people aren't working, but they're actually learning to save more. They're not spending. So, and I think you're right that when people come out of this, uh, I mean, you hate to say it, but sometimes uh, the best lessons learned are the ones that come the hard way. And this is, uh, this is what I think will happen, too. I think people are going to spend less just because they've experienced something that they never thought would ever happen in their life. And could it happen again? Hey, you never know now, right? Yeah, and I think having to stay home, being asked to stay home or to limit our activities, I think that even just for however long that lasts, and it may be over by the time this segment uh, runs in the big way that it is now, um, I mean, that makes a difference for people. For sure. I mean, it's, you know, the other good thing that I think has come of this is people have, like you sort of talked about it, more time with their families, sort of experiencing the things that are really important. Is it, is it that nice car? Is it that motorcycle? Is it, you know, that fancy watch? Or, or is it really, you know, what's important? And, and I think that's sort of changing a lot, too, which is a great thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what I'm hoping comes out of this, too, is a whole lot less stigma around debt, that I think there's mm. going to be, you know, so much financial impact, so many people having a tough time that, you know, I think finally they'll start to throw out into the open uh, the fact that the average consumer is overextended and we shouldn't be judging ourselves. We should just be able to move forward and actually take some steps to, to fix the problem rather than be, you know, so down on everybody for getting into it. Uh, Mark, I was curious from your perspective, are there clients who you think shouldn't investigate, uh, you know, a mortgage deferral, um, you know, whether they wouldn't get approved or it's not the right decision for them? Well, I, I think the key component is, are you experiencing financial hardship right now as a result of, you know, this pandemic? Um, you know, there's, there's talk, I've read things about, you know, why, you know, don't do it, it's going to accrue interest. But when you think of this, Blair, your interest rate is at your contract rate. So if you've got a 3% interest rate or a five-year term, that's the, you know, it's such, it's such a small interest rate. So 
you know, the, the question is, if you can afford to pay your mortgage payment, then go ahead and pay it. But if you are having hardship, you've lost a job, or, you know, your income has been reduced, or you're having to stay home to look after someone who's not well because of, you know, this virus, then you know what? This is a great thing. I, I, I think the interest rate's so low, um, you're not going to have to pay it immediately. It gets tagged to the uh, end of your mortgage, so it's, it's, it's insignificant. So I would say, absolutely, if you can say that you've been affected by the virus in some way, then yeah, you're, you're likely going to qualify. Okay, and that makes good sense. And yeah, as you're speaking here, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, if the difference is you got a credit card bill that you've got to pay, uh, and if you don't defer your mortgage, you're not able to pay it, well, your credit card is probably 20 to 30% interest, and your mortgage is free, so uh, that's not too tough of a calculation to make. That's a better use of your funds. Absolutely, and then there's, you know, you bring up the, you know, the idea of credit card. I think, you know, what I've told to a lot of my clients is just make a list of all your debt, and sort of, if you've been affected by this, Start with your mortgage, if you have one, uh, or your rent, or whatever it is, and go down the line, your credit card, call them up. I think everybody, within reason, is working with people because they know this is something that we've never experienced before, and everybody's having a tough time. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out there, but uh, be prepared to be put on hold for quite a while. Yeah, fair enough, right? And from a credit rating point of view, Mark, I get this question a lot when you're dealing with creditors. You know, if you're deferring a mortgage payment, what is the impact? Is that going to affect your credit? Well, I'm I'm hoping not. So they're saying that if you've been approved for a deferral, then the banks will not be reporting to the credit bureau because typically, as you know, Blair, you miss payments. Uh, It gets automatically uh, computer-generated and reported to the credit bureau. So it's one of those things where the bank actually has to make that change. So I'm telling all my clients that it shouldn't affect your credit. It's not supposed to, but if you can get something in writing from whoever you're speaking to at the bank, so at least at the end of the day, if you go back and find out that, hey, this affected my credit and the bank told me that it wasn't, then at least you've got a name and some type of communication to go back and, and try to you know, sort of get it sorted out at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's just so important because I, I deal with clients, you know, quite often. Okay, there's an inaccuracy on the credit report. If you've got something in writing, you know, I can send them the documents to say what should be on there. It's very easy to get it to get it corrected. If it's well, you know, the bank promised me they wouldn't report this payment late, but you don't know who, you don't know when, you didn't get it in, in writing. Uh, you're not going to be successful in getting your credit rating, you know, fixed if there is an error made on that. Absolutely, and you know, we we've all. Not all, but you and I, Blair, we're in the same sort of dealing with credit issues, and we know that the amount of inconsistencies on a person's credit bureau are crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost rarer to find one that has zero errors than to find one that has a bunch. They almost all have at least a few things. No, for sure. It, it, it should be corrected there. Um, so, so, Mark, I'm curious your, your overall advice, you know, of clients who are you know, in a mortgage now, they're considering about mortgage deferral, or even more broadly considering, you know, what do I do to get through this next, you know, period of time, however long it's going to be? Uh, what type of advice would you give to consumers at this point? Well, you know, we talked about this uh, a while back, but right now, and I think every, it's in the news, uh, you know, obviously the virus is huge. Our health is, is priority. Uh, you know, I truly believe your financial health and your physical health and mental health, they're all connected. So we all know the negative impact that stress can have on our health. So if deferring your mortgage reduces stress in your life, whether it be financial stress, mental stress, any kind of stress, then you know what? They should be taking care of it. Uh, you know, a person's health and their family are priority. And if this can if this can assist them, then, hey, you know what? They should be absolutely applying if they haven't already to defer their mortgage. Okay, that's great. Uh, Elaine, any other questions? Or I think we're well, popping up uh, on time here. 
I was just thinking uh, just in the last 30 seconds, I know, Blair, that you talked to so many people and your business has been very, very busy as a result of what's going on, that you are hearing a lot of stress in people's lives and uh, and in their voices when they're talking to you. And it sounds like good information that, that we need to look after our mental health as much as well as our financial health and, and physical health. Yeah, I think everybody just has to take a step back, and I know it's stressful, but take a deep breath. Nothing is going to happen immediately. It's, uh, it's one of those things where the courts are closed. Nobody's coming after you. Nobody's taking your house. So just sit back, take a deep breath, and sort of figure out what the next best step is. And if that's to defer your mortgage, then you know what? Do it, and I'm sure you're going to feel better once it's done. That's great. Thank you, Mark. We've been talking with Mark Fidget. He's a member of Verico Mortgage Network. Uh, you can find him at www.advancedequity.ca. For information about debt and, and maybe taking some uh, steps or at least getting more information, go to Sands & Associates, their website, sands-trustee.com, or call one 800 661 3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment, it's so great because it's all about warning signs for homeowners because real estate market and owning your own home in the lower mainland and really in all sorts of places in British Columbia, it's often a bit of a gamble. Um, so this is a good, this is a really good segment. If you're thinking about, oh, gee, this is cropped up, that's cropped up. What should I do about it? So all about the warning signs of a possibly a looming debt problem for you, especially if you own a home and you're carrying debts in addition to your mortgage. So owning a home is a great source of pride for most people. And But sometimes it can be, I don't know, the beginning of the end. That sounds pretty bad. But when you're in a crazy market like we are in terms of mortgage rates, et cetera, and special assessments and property taxes, which can go up and down um, so easily and can really put people in, in situations, in a bad situation. This is such a great segment, Blair. So let's, can we talk about some of the common housing problems or situations that people are coming to you to talk about or, or at least to get some help with? Yeah, certainly, Elaine. So, so thank you for that. And I think I agree. It is an important topic. You know, from my perspective as, as a trustee, you know, it's been striking to me the, the very small number of people that come to us for help that are homeowners. So we did a survey about 1,300 of our clients in the past year who had filed bankruptcy or made a consumer proposal. And that's a pretty significant proportion of all those in the province. And it was only 4.4% of people uh, who had filed the bankruptcy or a proposal were homeowners. So the vast okay. majority of people that came to see us, uh, they were renters, they were maybe uh, living with family, they were students, different things like that. Uh, but, you know, a whole lot of, of people didn't own real estate, which was quite surprising. You know, I thought it'd be a higher rate uh, than, the, than the 4% there. But what we found is that it wasn't the case that, you know, homeowners were immune to debt. What's happened is that with prices going up every year, uh, it's allowed a lot of homeowners to really validate or, you know, correct some, you know, bad behavior, unfortunately, uh, just 
by tapping the equity in their home on a, on a recurring basis. So what that comes down to is home equity lines of credit. And a home equity line of credit, you typically just need to pay the interest balance on it. So rather than a credit card bill or something like that, where you know, you're paying off the debt over time, a lot of individuals that I've spoken with, and a bit of a theory there's more to come here, um, they're typically tapping their equity with home equity lines of credit, you know, putting charges against that. And it's okay when the prices go up every few years and you refinance and you pay off all those lines of credit. Well, okay as a relative term, because obviously you've got less equity than you would have if you didn't do that. Uh, but right. what really happens is if your values start to decline or if they start to freeze, uh, you might find that, oh my God, I've now got this home equity line of credit. Uh, you know, I'm paying interest only on it right now, but I'm hearing a lot of rumors from banks where you know, a lot of people don't realize that their home equity lines of credit are basically callable loans. So the bank at any point could say, you know, we're not comfortable with this. We want to pay down by half or a third or the whole thing paid down. And if you can't do that, that could force you to essentially put the home on the market and maybe sell it in a tough market just to deal uh, with the home equity line of credit, even if the mortgage is in good shape, but you've, you've essentially eroded the equity using the, the HELOC too much. That's super interesting. And we get, you know, we're, we get inundated with the advertising about home equity lines of credit from all kinds of sources. And it always makes me a bit nervous when I see them because I think, boy, if you're use, if you're going to that and they say, hey, for $10,000, for $100,000 or yeah. $500,000, and it sounds so fabulous but at the end of the day you really are putting yourself in um, a tough situation or a tougher situation at the end of the day I think oh yeah and it, it's some of the heartbreaking meetings that I have when I sit down I, I you know sit down with a couple for example and sometimes they're you know older you know past their working life they've owned a house in Vancouver for 30 years they might have bought it for you know a hundred thousand dollars and now it's worth two million uh, but Elaine when we look through and we say how do you have no equity they have no equity because year after year when they got these assessments and the value went up and the bank said oh you can refinance to get this money out and do this renovation or spend it on a trip or something like that uh, it's to the point where yeah all of this equity that they should have had in the future for a very comfortable retirement it's all been spent in advance which is exactly what a home equity line of credit lets you do it's just basically spending in advance the equity that you're hoping to build up and probably the, great, the biggest investment for most people. Right. So what do, you, what do we look for? What, do, what are you suggesting that homeowners watch out for, uh, for signs that you could be headed for trouble? Well, the first one is to really take a holistic look at how much of your income is spent on housing. So look at all of your, your expenses on a monthly basis, put a budget together, consider your mortgage, your strata, any special assessments, your insurance, repairs, so on and so forth. Uh, if that as a percentage of your income is more than about 35%, and oftentimes I'm seeing it at around 50% or more, uh, you're really putting yourself on the nice edge because it's very difficult for you to save any emergency fund uh, to diversify yourself at all if 50% of your income is essentially going to your housing. Um, so be very, very careful. And if that does happen, uh, you may want to consider at that point, you know, is this sustainable? You know, is my income going to increase enough that's going to go down over time? Or am I just in the wrong house? You know, I bought this thinking the prices were going to go way up. They haven't. And now I'm really putting myself in a tough financial situation with all my money going to housing. So it's the whole, you know, house poor type of situation. Right. Got it. Um, what about uh, what about relying on credit? I would think that that would be a bit of a concern. 
Yeah, and you know sometimes this can be a little bit of, of a revelation because a lot of people don't realize a lot of banks. You know they they put things into you know a single account or readvanceable mortgage. You know you access the line of credit every month and it gets paid off a little when your paycheck comes in. And sometimes it's so mixed up together that you don't realize you're actually relying on credit every month. That the money going out is you know it exceeds the money coming in from your salary. And the difference is that your home equity line or even your mortgage balance it isn't getting paid down. It's going up over time. Uh, so you got to be careful about that if that is the case, but also look at your behavior. So aside from your mortgage, if you're you know, spending 50% of your housing costs, are you then relying on credit cards to make up the difference in your daily costs? Are you taking out payday loans? Are you moving money around from one card to another, trying to get the low interest rate on this one for six months and then flip it on to the next one for another six months? And sometimes, you know, you can do that for a period of time, uh, but it typically doesn't have a happy ending. Right. So, so you've mentioned a bunch of things to, to watch out for. What else? Uh, what else in terms of behavior should you pay attention to if you're, if you feel like you're sort of edging towards there? Especially like things that we've talked about before about making minimum payments for things. Yeah, that's the number one warning sign, Elaine. I'm really happy you hit on that because if you find that you're stretched and all you're doing is paying the minimums, to me, that's the biggest warning sign that you've got a real debt problem because you know even $6,000 on minimum payments is going to be a 40-year payment plan. So imagine your balance, if all you're paying is minimums on that, you know, you're doing nothing but giving the bank about a 20% return on their money every year, which is great for them, uh, but not really helping you in your financial situation. So if you're only making the minimums, that's a big warning sign. If you've borrowed against most of your home equity, so if you look at, well, where would I be right now if I didn't take out a home equity line um, and you know just paid the mortgage down? And the reality is, you're so significantly worse off there. You really need to look back and understand the why. You know, is it just a monthly overspending? Is it the broken budget? Are you just in an unsustainable situation? You're just hoping that the capital asset, the house itself, the price is going to go up enough that when you sell, everything's going to get paid back. And to be straight with you, for the last five, ten years, that has worked out. You know, people being overextended and and putting the house on the market and getting a big bump when it sells, that's allowed them to you know, essentially clear a lot of the debt, not have a whole lot of equity, but at least clear the debt. The challenge is as you go forward in a bit of a slowing market, is that going to be possible again in the future? Right. So in our last minute and a half, we're going to talk about two options that you're an expert on. So we're not going to be able to cover all the information, that's for sure. But give folks an idea or a sense of the two options that are left, that if they need to make some changes or they need to, to really attack their debt. Yeah, I would say before people jump to the conclusion that, you know, the only option here is I've got to sell the house or I've got to allow a foreclosure or the bank's going to take it back or something like that, you know, realize that with a licensed insolvency trustee, you probably do have a couple of options at least. You know, one is to do a consumer proposal and, you know, proposal or a bankruptcy, both of them you could structure where you keep the house, you keep making the mortgage payments or where you surrender the house back to the bank and you deal with it. If there's a shortfall with the, basically the financial hangover, you deal with that so you start back at zero. So if it was a consumer proposal, we'd have to look at, well, what's the value of the equity in the house? What's the value of the debts? And if the equity is worth less than the debts, we're able to make a deal on the debts. We can offer a reasonable settlement, you know, pay back what the person can afford. You know, if they've got a lot of equity and we're not able to reduce the debts, at least we're able to freeze all the interest, give them five years to pay things off, and they'd be able to stay in the house as well. So it's not the case, you know, that the only answer is to sell or to have it foreclosed. There are definitely some options, either a proposal in the first instance or even a personal bank 
bankruptcy would allow you to get back to zero. And here's the best thing about Sands and Associates is their website. They've got so much good information that will answer a lot of your questions if you're thinking this may be your route. It's sands-trustee.com. That's the website. Or better yet, give them a call 1-800-661-3030 and get that free first consultation as well as find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.